the idea that one's best work is behind them is something that I haven't had to work to deal with because I'm still hoping that my best work is in front of me and I'm still striving to make my best work. Like I know that I haven't made my best work yet. I know that deep in my soul. You're listening to the Wheeler Centre podcast. Okay, just before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that this event is taking place on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay respects to their elders, past and present. Also wanted to just talk about the fact that this event is presented by the Wheeler Centre as part of Melbourne Design Week 2022 an initiative of the Victorian government and in collaboration with the National Gallery of Victoria. So, I am very honoured today to be speaking with Debbie Millman. It's very exciting and something I've been looking forward to for nearly two years. We worked out (laughs) two years ago. Two years ago. Hi, everybody. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) So nice to be here with you all. So um, I'm going to do this wonderful bio and try and do it justice. Oh, and no. I'm sure Roxanne, she doesn't need to hear this again. So, no, no. so that we can do this without her here. So named as one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company and one of the most influential designers working today by Graphic Design USA, Debbie Millman is an author, an educator, a curator and a host of podcast design matters almost you almost invented podcasts let's just say (laughs) um debbie's podcast design matters is one of the first and longest running podcasts and as host and founder millman has interviewed nearly 500 of the most creative people in the world over the past 17 years i think it's amazing her illustrations have appeared in the New York Times, New York Magazine, and Fast Company. And her artwork has been displayed in numerous museums, universities, and design exhibits throughout the United States. Debbie is the author of now seven books. And her most recent book, Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People, we're going to talk about today, which is very exciting. So what we're hoping to get through in the next hour, what we're going to hopefully cover, is a life with creativity and a practice of mastering this, designing a remarkable life, curation, intention, confidence, courage, regret and failure. So let's jump right Basically my whole life. (laughs) So we're all coming up for air. Um, We've all been in the tumble dryer of COVID. And I think we all, I mean, I think I know myself, I almost don't remember how to do daily things like talk to people in person, and especially talking in front of a whole group of people. Um, And so, Debbie, just to start this off, do you experience any of those sort of jitters in life? Oh, my God, every day. And this is the first time I've worn Spanx in a really long time. (laughs) It's really not comfortable. What was I thinking? (laughs) Um, So the positive aspects of COVID. Now, one of the things I share with you is that need to feel productive all the time, that addiction of doing something that matters. So how did you cope with that slowing down and dealing with that sort of need to be productive with COVID? Was there anything that you've learned? Well, before COVID, I was spending 90% of my time in New York. Mm where I have lived my whole life. Mm. Roxanne 
my wife now, we got married during COVID, lives in LA. Mm -hmm. And so we were going back and forth, but we weren't living together. Um, once I got to, once the, once COVID happened, she suggested that I come to LA because she has a car and there was more sky and there was a lot more accessibility. Mm. And she said, pack for two weeks. You know, this'll, this'll, <laughs> you know, we all thought that it was just going to go away. Mm. I remember thinking back in April of 2020, like, hopefully my students will be able to do thesis in person. And this is the first year that we'll be doing that. And it's hard to even imagine what we were thinking at that time. Mm. So there's sort of this interesting thing that happened in that I was very, very busy with a very active social life and doing a lot of different things. But most of my work was centered at the School of Visual Arts, where I run a, a branding program, mm. a, graduate, a graduate program in branding. When that went online, it gave me the freedom to be able to go to LA and be with Which Roxanne for what ended up being pretty much a year. Wow. But the transition from teaching in person mm -hmm. to teaching online was mm -hmm. not pretty for me. I am not technologically savvy. <laughs> um, it's very hard for me to even work a remote. Yeah. And so when we went literally in a matter of days from an in-person, fully engaged program to online where I had to manage Slack, Canvas, um, Zoom, yeah, which, and then in the time zones and my calendar and everything. I mean, there were days where it was just projectile tears. Yeah, yeah. And I was very honest with my students at the time, like, this is a whole new thing for me. I'm well into middle age and doing this is not something that was elegant. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so the first couple of months of COVID, I wasn't even thinking about productivity. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking, how am I going to manage to teach a group of people that had signed on for a very intense, immersive, full-on, in-person experience yeah. now on Zoom? Yeah. And that was really, really hard. Plus, again, for those first couple of months, I was like, we're going to power through. We're going to get to be doing thesis in person. And yeah. then obviously, not only did we not, but the whole next cohort of students did their degree completely online. But at least they knew what they were signing up for. That year, we knew it was going to be an online experience. That first year, those students signed up for something that ended up being very, very different. And yeah. so I was just obsessed with trying to do the best possible job I could. Yeah. It was only later that my ideas about productivity began to change. And I realized that I was actually a lot happier living in LA than mm -hmm. I was in New York. And I'm a diehard New Yorker. I've <laughs> lived in New York my entire life. Yeah. That time in LA was the first time in my life, and I'm 60, that I was away from New York, the, wow. the longest period. And I also felt tremendous guilt because my city was suffering so much. Mm -hmm. Um, but what I ended up finding out was I was just a lot calmer in L.A. Mm -hmm. And it's not even people ask me all the time, do you like L.A. better or New York? And I'm like, it's really they're very different cities. I can't say I like one more than the other. I just like me better in L.A. Yeah. because I'm less angry. <laughs> I'm less intense. I'm not as busy. Yeah. And I just find my mood to just be much easier and, and much more relaxed. And was that you in LA during COVID, though, as well? Was that also giving you that calmness? Because LA was slower? Well, we weren't able to do anything. No. So we also, so the first year of COVID was actually 
despite what was happening in the world. Yeah. Roxanne and I were in like a love bubble. You, were, yeah. you know, we had Beautiful. just fallen in love. Yeah. We were like, we get to spend 24 hours a day together. This You're is not, kind yeah, of amazing. This is how did we luck out? We and we didn't get sick. We got very lucky. The second year of COVID, 2021, was the worst year of our lives for yeah. a lot of different reasons. But 2020 was really wonderful. 2021, uh, terrible. Right. Um, now we're hoping 2022 is so far be, so good. It's going to be good. So it's far so good. good. And we're here. What, e you know, we're not complaining. Yeah. Um, but in terms of productivity, because of the difference in our lifestyles in that first year, I was very much of the mindset that I was going to change my life. Like I was in that, my life has to change. Yeah. I don't want to be so busy. I want to spend more time just being alive yeah. and not running, running, running all the time. And and that that did not happen. Right, right. <laughs> and now I'm beating myself up about that. Like yeah, why exactly. can't I try to get off this productivity addiction wheel? It didn't happen. And, and you know, part of the reason was this book, but mm -hmm. I'm still really aspiring to get to that place where it feels okay. My friend Jocelyn mm. Gly asked this question years ago, and it's something that's just in my, she asked it on her podcast, and uh, which is called Hurry Slowly, which is a wonderful podcast. And she said, who are you without the, the producing, mm. the making, yeah. the running? And I'm still working on still trying to find that out. Wonderful, wonderful. So maybe then what we should do is talk a bit about this wonderful book then, this fantastic book, which we don't have yet um, in Australia due to supply issues, um, yep. supply chain issues, which is a yep. real shame. But it is coming. And just to let you all know, because we are going to talk about this, but you can order a copy through readings, um, I believe, right now. And um, as soon as it's here, you'll be getting a copy. But let's just talk, first of all, about the, the, the sheer size, because it's not a... Um, it's not a little book at all. It's a massive book. It's it a coffee a big table book. book. It's a big book. And I've heard it being um, described as five pounds, which for everybody here is 2.5 kilos in weight um, and is travelling. So so can we just talk about this idea of the dividing sections, the wonderful, um, this idea of these, uh, the book's actually in five sections, five sections, legends, truth-tellers, cultural makers, trendsetters, and visionaries, and just how you manage to get this concept to work and your thinking on this. Well, the book is about 55 interviews. 55, wonderful. 55 interviews, number of essays, and an introduction that I've written about sort of the journey of making this podcast now for nearly two decades. Um, and I felt that just putting 55 interviews out there was just too much to navigate through. I wanted to make it a little bit more bite-sized. Mm, bite-sized, mm. And um, actually, I do have to say, quite frankly, Roxanne came up with the titles <laughs> for the chapters. I was, Is she here for this she's, she's all the way in the back. Oh, good. She got that. Got <laughs> um, and so I have to give her all of that credit. I felt like it, there needed to be a way to navigate through the book. And in many cases, and part of the reason the people that are in the book are in the book is that they're kind of all of those things in a lot of ways. Um, so we tried as best as we could to sort of organize it in a way that made it just a little bit easier for people to open up and manage the journey through. Yeah, of course. So 
So you've managed to talk to some of the world's most creative people and you've discussed the worlds that they create for themselves, which is pretty remarkable. Are there any stories that, I mean, I'm sure that all of them in some way have um, impacted you, but are there any that you could pull out that help with your life or with things that you go through? Were there any that really sort of hit hard? Um, well, I think that there's so many. Um, I think that one, since we're talking about productivity, um, one of my interviews with Seth Godin, mm -hmm. a more recent interview that I did with him when his book, The Practice, came out. It's a book that I talk about a lot. Yeah. One of the things that Seth talks about at great length in, in the book, The Practice, is who and why are you making your work? Mm. And so much of the world now seems to be organized around creating content. Yeah. And as an old school journalism and art mm. director person, um, the idea of content feels a little bit vulgar to me. Yeah. Yeah. I much prefer the words editorial mm. and art. And so he talks a lot about the motivation for making things and how we're living in a world now where it seems like people are motivated to make content to put out there yep. to almost serve their own needs. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that I love about Seth's book is the idea of the practice of the making of something as a discipline yeah. that you do every day mm -hmm. for the sheer virtue of getting better at it, of developing mastery, of learning something about yourself that you could share with others, as opposed to it being content that you're producing. And so that's something that I've really thought about a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the idea of experimenting through your work yeah. and not just making work for the likes and the follows, but making work to try to work through something. Yeah. And then the process of doing that if it does become public, it's something that is actually helping people learn something about themselves mm -hmm. as opposed to producing a persona that ends up being, for the most part, pretty false. Yeah. I mean, I, I have said this before and I'll say it again, as much as I am as the next person addicted to Instagram, mm -hmm. it's very rare that I come away from looking at Instagram for 20 or 30 minutes feeling good about myself. Yeah, never, you know? never. It's like, no. wow, everybody's life is so much better than mine. Yeah, I know. And, <laughs> and, and that's just not a good thing mm -mm -mm. because I actually have a pretty great life. If somebody that is actually really struggling has that same response, what does that say yeah. about the experience of doing this? Yeah, that's right. It's, it's actually... And it's so scary, especially with younger children as well. I've got yeah. a 12-year-old, and I just think, there's no way I want you on Instagram. Well, they're now calling Generation Z Generation D, D for depressed, because they're living this comparative, performative life. And, really you know, tough. Roxanne and I have been watching Euphoria, yeah. which really terrifies me, because yeah. if this is what happens in high school, yeah. I mean, my God, what's going to happen when Rue goes to college? <laughs> That's right. Um, but other things that I've learned, I mean, I think there's a few things that I've talked about very publicly and very regularly because they're things that have really profoundly impacted the way that I think about my own life. One was with uh, David Lee Roth, mm. uh, the former frontman of Van Halen, who was a jester. And, you know, when I was interviewing him, I was doing it in person. I was doing it in my studio at SVA. 
And the way that I used to do the podcast was live, face-to-face with my guests, just like this. And my students were sitting outside the sound studio, which has a big glass window so they could see in. And David is a performer at heart. And so he was really performing for the students. And so a lot of the interview was my just trying to rein him back in to look at me (laughs) and not the beautiful women sitting outside the window. (laughs) And so at one point, though, I did ask him what it felt like to be sort of the most popular dude on the planet in 1984. Yeah. I mean, I was alive during 1984. I, was, I had graduated college by 1984, and their album, 1984, was one of the most popular mm-hmm. records of the year. They had the most popular video. They had the most successful grossing tour. Wow. And, you know, what did that feel like? Yeah. What, and, and, and he was playing alongside um, Eddie Van Halen. Mm-hmm. So what was that like for him? For the one moment in the, in the interview, yeah. he stopped being a jester. And he got really introspective, and he said something that I think is one of the most profound things anybody's ever said to me. Um, And the only reason the interview's not in the book is because everything else was very gestury and very funny and very witty and very performative. But this was real, and he said that you have to be really careful when you get to the top of the tallest mountain that exists. Ah, Wow. Because it's always cold. Yeah. You're most often alone and there's only one direction to journey. Mm. And it suddenly made me realize, as much as I've been striving for so much my whole life, and certainly for the first 30 or so years, Mm. it was a struggle nearly daily, that I would rather have not peaked in 1984. And the idea that one's best work is behind them is something that I haven't had to work to deal with because yeah, I'm great. still hoping that my best work is in front of me and I'm still striving to make my best mm-hmm. work. Like I know that I haven't made my best work yet. I know that deep in my soul. And so that's part of what I worry about now at 60. Like how much time do I have left? If yeah. not now, when? Yeah. When am I going to stop futzing around and yeah. really get down to the work that I'm supposed to be doing? Um, isn't futz a good word? <laughs> but I, I almost played that, that word yesterday in Scrabble. <laughs> oh, look, I think you've done an amazing amount in your life, and I think this book is is pretty pretty up there. But but I'm sure there's going to be many, many more things that you're going to do, and I love that idea of of never maybe getting to the top of the mountain. Well, I, now I, I say I'd like to peak good. the day before I die. Yeah, just before you die, that's yeah. very good. Um, you talk a lot about leadership being messy and life being messy, and I love that idea of a messy life. I don't, I've never loved that idea, actually, to be honest. I've, I've always... Um, I juggle a lot. I'm as a creative and as a mum and as, a, as an owner of a studio. Um, and I think my secret has always been to keep everything organised around me, like always organising. And and in the weekend even, and I think this is something you've mentioned before, which I loved, was organising even a sock drawer being pleasurable oh, kind yes. of thing. Um, but so how do you embrace messy life and how do you cope with that? How, do you, how does that come in when you are so organized in a way? Well, I think part of the reason I am so organized is to have some semblance of control, control yeah. over what I can because mm-hmm. of all the messiness around. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so, yes, my desk at SVA always has to be pristine. I have, I'm a little bit OCD. Other people I know very well might think I'm very OCD <laughs> about where things go in the house. Yeah. And, right. you know, if something's been moved, I can see that it's been moved and I put it back. <laughs> and I've been known to take glasses away from people when they're not finished drinking because oh. I think they are and putting them in the dishwasher. So um, I'm, I'm very... I think I'm terrified of, of the world being so out of control that I do what I can just in my immediate surroundings. But I've also lived enough to know that no matter how much you exert any type of intended control on your day-to-day -day existence, you know, that's futile. There's, yeah. you know, it's a fool's game. There's just no way to be able to control anything, really. No, that's Except, right. you know, where, where, where my shoes go in my closet. You yeah. know, that's it. That's basically it. Yeah. And so, therefore, I am adamant about doing that. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I did learn running a, a brand consultancy for 20-plus mm -hmm. years was that there, it's all messy. Yeah. Everything is yeah. messy. Every client is messy. Every engagement is messy. Yeah. There's no one way to lead. There's yeah. no one way to run things. Totally. The very yeah. things that make some people happy and thrilled are the very things that outrage yeah. others as the sort of OCD people, per, people pleaser. Mm -hmm. I'm also like always, is everybody happy? You're not happy? You in the back? Okay, what can I do? You know, and, <laughs> exactly. and that's the way yeah. I live. And that's exhausting. Yeah. It's exhausting. Yeah. I do it with yeah. my family. I do it with my friends. Oh. I'm constantly worried about how everybody's doing. And everyone's feeling. Yeah. And, and that, that is messy as well. Mm -hmm. And so I've learned, especially in my practice as a designer, as a brand strategist, that all of that... And it doesn't bother me anymore because yeah, now right. I expect it. I just know that it's going to be that way. And I have clients like, oh, I'm so sorry. Things are so unorganized. I'm like, it's fine. this is the way it always is. Yeah. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Just relax. This is the way it always is. I don't get that same sense of fear mm. and doom and yeah. sort of globalized catastrophic intensity when I think that something is out of control work-wise or client-wise or project-wise because mm. it just always is. And And it's part of... I think it's part of what makes it exciting as yeah, well for me because yeah. it's never the same. It's always different and it always flows in different ways. And when you see junior designers coming in and they're like, I thought you told me it was going to be like this and it's not at all. Yeah. Um, it's just, and I th being agile and open enough just to take that journey I think is, yeah. is really interesting. So you mention you can't make everyone happy and all the time, which I find really interesting because I'm very similar in that sense that I'm always trying to keep the client happy and the team happy. And, and during COVID, that became so hard to do. The more you tried to make people happy, the worse sometimes it got. And well, you know what the operative yeah. word here is, Michaela? Make. Make. Yeah. Make. How could you make someone happy? Yeah, how can you? Yeah. And, and it, you know, it comes from my childhood. I know mm. that. I remember my mm. dad saying, you know, when I was having a bad day or something, and I didn't see him that often because yeah. my parents were divorced and it was really cantankerous. And I remember him getting really frustrated with me saying, can't you just be happy for me? And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, and I'm spending <laughs> the rest of my life being happy for my dad who's Bad. dead, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And and you, it's it's impossible. So... So for you to manage that, keeping everybody happy, do you just feel now that you have... I mean, I'd love to know how you learn oh, to manage that. Oh, I don't. I haven't okay. learned it yet. No. Okay, great. No, I'm still working with my therapist still about working. on it. Okay, you know, good. What would we, so what would happen <laughs> if somebody was angry with you? Well, then they would be angry. Yeah. Okay. 
Then what? Well, then they wouldn't like me. And then what? Well, then they make me feel bad about myself. Mm-hmm. Already there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so that's we work right. it. It's like a loop. It's like a constant loop of trying to figure out how to get beyond that. And I do think I'm better. Yeah. I absolutely think I'm better. I do actually sometimes, occasionally, say no to things. Yeah, that's a big And that's part. a big step. Yeah, it really is. Step. But then you still feel absolutely guilty. I mean, I had to say no yes. to something yesterday. And I felt guilty all day just for yeah. saying no. Um, which is really hard. And know. part of it is also now thinking, I wonder, you know, at the very end of my life, how I'm going to feel about the fact that I've lived my whole life trying to make other people happy. Yeah. I think that that's, that's going to be good. something I regret. Right. Yeah. And, we, and I think that's really interesting because regret, I think, is something we'll get to soon, yeah. actually. We'll talk about regret. So what, one thing I'd love to talk a bit about is that designing a remarkable life. And you talk to your students, you teach this. I would love to know more about this, and I'm sure a lot of the audience would love to know how to design a remarkable life. And I think there's also... Um, uh, I'd, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about how, that, how you do that, how it works. I mean, we do brand strategy and do visionary with organisations, you know, talk about vision with organisations, plan that, but we never plan it for ourselves. We never look back at ourselves. So... Anything that you can sort of talk about that process would be amazing. Well, it's a process that I, or I mean, it's a process <laughs> that I have picked up really and and sort of help continue to push forward. It was created by Milton Glaser. Mm-hmm. Uh, Milton Glaser was my teacher in 2005. Um, it was my first experience at the School of Visual Arts long before I became a teacher there. Mm-hmm. And I took a summer intensive with him which was organized for mid-level professionals who felt like they wanted to reboot their lives. And I was very lucky. It's a sort of first-come, first-served class. As soon as it opens, whoever signs up is accepted, and he accepts 30 students. He accepted 30 students every summer. And I found out about the class in an advanced copy of print magazine that I had gotten as, a, as one of the writers of a piece, I got an author's copy wow. early and, and saw, and I was literally the first person that signed up yeah. for the class Wonderful. the day it opened because I knew that it was, it was happening. And so I took this class, and it was a, an extraordinary experience. It was one of the most profound experiences of my life. Mm-hmm. One of the exercises, in fact, the last exercise of the program was an exercise that Milton said he had been teaching for pretty much the entire time he'd wow. been teaching, wow. which was about 50 years at it's that point. It's phenomenal, isn't it? He's amazing. And he said it was the most important thing he did. Mm-hmm. And he, it was an exercise where he asked us to envision our lives five years into the future and write an essay as detailed as we could, and he Mm -hmm. urged us to really Mm -hmm. write like our lives depended on it, um, to write an essay about what that that life could look like. As if anything you wanted was capable, you were capable of achieving, and would not fail. And so I did. And, you know, I, I'm, I, you know, again, because I'm a people pleaser, because I wanted Milton's approval, I put my heart into this exercise. And I knew we were going to have to share it with the class. And so not only did I write a 12-page essay, <laughs> I also made a list of everything. Of so course. I had a list of 20 things I was going to accomplish by 2010. Wow. And, and it was a remarkable experience to have this sort of vision of what this 
really remarkable mm-hmm. life could be. Mm-hmm. And I kind of forgot about the essay after. And yeah. about a year or so later, I was looking, I had written it in a journal that I was keeping at the time. It wasn't like in a special place. When yeah. that journal was done, I put it with my others. Yeah. And I was looking for some notes from something else that I had written in that journal, went back to it, said, oh, look at this essay, read it and was like, holy cannoli, this wow. is amazing. And could think things had started happening. Wow, because you'd put it out there in the world. And, and, de- and as Milton said, declared, declared it. it. You yeah, know, wonderful. I really owned it. Mm-hmm. And over the next, I would say, so it's, 20, 20, so it's 17 years. I would say it took about 15 years for it all to happen. So Every not single five, thing. But you got not all five, of it yeah. in 15. When Milton wow. stopped teaching, I asked him if I could start teaching that exercise at SVA. Oh, wonderful. And he gave me permission to do Mm -hmm. it. But I asked him if I could change it because he was teaching mid-level designers, people that had already spent like 10 years working, 15 years working. Mm -hmm. I was teaching young students. I was teaching seniors and undergraduates. And that was one of the things on my list, by the way, to teach at the School of Visual Arts. And there I was teaching at the School of Visual Arts. So it felt very sort of kismet to Mm. be asking Milton to teach that, if I could teach it, and he gave me his permission, and I started teaching it, but I changed it to 10 years to give everybody a little bit more runway. And so I've been doing that, and I'm constantly, I have a student, Santiago Carasquilla, who has a studio in Los Angeles in the United States, and he wrote me recently, and he's, it's been about seven years since Mm. he was in my undergraduate class, and he he wrote me recently um, that he had a gift to give me. He came over to the studio at SVA, gave him this beautiful lamp, Oh. And you know this light, Beautiful. and said yeah. that every single thing had come true. Oh my and goodness! And I was just, you know, my heart just broke open into a million pieces. And I get a lot of notes like that from people. Mm. Mm. Um, and so did Milton. Milton said it was a very mysterious, magical exercise. He had no idea how why it worked, but it did. So it did. I have a, I made a card deck. Yeah. It'll be out, I think, in the fall oh. about how to sort of take yourself through the exercise without my having to teach you. Oh, that would be um, amazing. So, so it's, it's sort of instructive, but very artsy. And oh. so it's something I'll be out, I think, in that, the fall. That'll and be great. It's, I think it's called the Remarkable Life Deck or something oh, like fantastic. that. Oh, yeah, fantastic. With that instructions really good. and we all need a little that. journal. And, yeah. Do you, so once you got to the 15 years or once you got there, did you do it again? Like, so, have you done it? So I, I, in 2017, I decided... This had been such a remarkable experience and mm. so successful, really, mm. that I should write another one. Mm. And because I had a hard time thinking about it or sitting down and actually doing it, I procrastinated and I ended up, because I'd given myself this deadline, I wanted to do it in 2017, I did it New Year's Eve oh, wow. into 2018. <laughs> Instead of a party, you were writing. I was sitting right yeah, 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 and I did it. And it's... So, yeah, a bunch of things. You know, I've gotten married, so, you know. Wow. Was yeah. that on the list? No, no it wasn't, because no, I didn't think no, it was possible. <laughs> I actually did not think it was possible, but so. it was about finding true love. Oh, well, that's amazing. It's beautiful. <laughs> Very beautiful. Um, okay, I've lost where... That was so good that I've completely lost where we're at. So, um, so that idea of... I suppose, and, and I think it's going to be really exciting to see that deck and, and see that, um, which will be springtime for us. But that idea of creating a life with intention, you talk a lot about intention, daily intention, or or being intentional about and curating things. Is that something in your mind is a daily practice, or is it just something that 
as I mean, intuitive? I, that's yeah. a good question. I mean, I do think about design as intention. You know, mm. we're making decisions. Yeah. And at its heart, that's really what design is. You know, curating yeah. choices curating about choices. typography and color and message and every mm. aspect of visual communication mm. is something that you have to intend. Tend. yeah. And very deliberately so. Um, but as far as the sort of way I move through the world, I don't think so. No, I don't think I'm no, thinking about that. I mean, other than, you know, the the 15-year plan. plan. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's probably the only time I've yeah. ever so really sat down and said, you know, this is what I want, and declared it, and, yeah. and sort of owned it. Owned it. And, but it's and scary be to somewhere. do. It'll be somewhere in there that, that yeah. it's yeah, that subconscious. So let's just talk about curation just for, for a second. Um, and, I, and I think what was really interesting for me um, when you talk about it is mastering the practice of curation and curation in the book, the way that you've thought about the book and the way that you've curated maybe not only the 55 essays but the imagery mm. I think would be really good. Just yeah. to sort of Thank you. Yeah, that ended up being my favourite part of doing this book, I have mm. to say. Yeah. I'm somebody that gets bored very easily with repetition. Yeah. And so the idea of having to go through what started as over 200 transcripts of interviews that I'd done wow. to try to pick what was going to be in the book and mm. not in the book and That's editing, huge. for me it was really arduous. Yeah. And, and it wasn't something that I was enjoying doing. Mm. And initially, when I first, first got the book deal, I was intending to go around and take beautiful photographs of the people that were going to be included in the book. That was something that I was really excited yeah, about. I've done several photo essays in print magazine mm. back when it was a printed magazine and was so excited about doing that work yeah. again and had a number of photographers that I was interested in working mm. with and that mm. I'd worked with before and was so thrilled about Oh. doing that the idea of being doing a photo shoot it's so much fun it's so creative it's so intimate yeah and then COVID happened and I couldn't do that yeah. and I had already gotten a one-year extension and there was no way I was going to get another wow. and so I ended up having to actually photo edit the book and started by just doing research, finding mm -hmm. photographs that I was interested in potentially having, then also trying to navigate how I was going to create a linear narrative through the book that wouldn't feel just choppy with different styles, with different photographers, different lighting, yeah. different mood, different tone, and ultimately was able to curate using, mm -hmm. you know, really intentionally picking 55 photos that I felt did actually work together wow. as one piece of art. Mm. And the criteria that I used for the photos was being able to see the soul of the person wow. in their eyes yeah. or in their stance. Mm. And, and I was able, I really truly feel like I was able to do that. And you got some amazing photographers. I, I really ended up getting some of the most successful photographers in the world. Well, I mean, no. I bought the photos, yep. so it wasn't like any favors. Yep. No. It was pretty much the advance mm. went to that. But you know what? I'm, it, because I'm so happy with the photography, yeah. that's my favorite part of the book yeah, is, is the photography. It, it really is a coffee table book because of the photography. Wow. And yeah. it was there were some really tense moments at the end because right. it's a big book. It's 10 by 10. So the photographs had to be gigantic in yeah. resolution. 
Sure. And it wasn't until the very end when we were doing print pre- print tests that some of the photographs weren't big enough. And uh-huh. so, and then also there were people that I wanted in the book whose photographs, like one of the people in the book is Elizabeth Alexander, yeah. the great poet, writer. Mm. She's a stunning woman. And I was, I was working with her people, not mm. directly with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and her people gave me her professional photograph from the Mellon Foundation. Right. It's a great photo. It's a great photo for fundraising. <laughs> but not for seeing but the soul. I wasn't seeing the soul in her face. And they were, they were like, well, Elizabeth really likes this photo. So, you know. And so I ended up doing a tremendous amount of research, oh. found this photo that I was able to end up using in the book. But had to get a friend of mine who knows Elizabeth to text her, to ask her to check her email, to please give me permission, because I needed permission from everyone for everything. Every word of the book had to be signed off on by the interviewees, the photographers, the quotes, everything. And so finally, at the last minute, got that. Oliver Jeffers, who I also really wanted to include, he had given me two photos Neither one were big enough. He was insistent oh. they were big enough. How do you argue with somebody? I mean, not argue because Oliver's a good yeah. friend, but I'm like, no, Oliver, it's really not big enough. It's really, I'm not making this up. Um, I need a bigger photo. And he ended up doing a photo shoot with a friend of his at the last minute. He's wearing his slippers. It's one of my favorite oh. photographs. But was literally we're that on was press. To print or something? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, on press, and the photo came through. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So very, yeah, a very tricky process, but obviously very, very worth it. And, you. and you learned something about yourself that you um, yeah, yeah. love. I, I, I am really ready, willing, and able to be a photo editor. There you go. <laughs> that's, uh, that's another part of the mountain that you've just climbed. Exactly. Um, so just a few quick fire questions. I'm just going to do a few quick fire questions because I've heard you do this before and I really enjoy it. Um, and the way you think about words. So I'd love just quickly the difference between confidence and courage and how you talk to those two. Yes. Well, this came from an interview I did. It came after an interview I did with Danny Shapiro. Mm. At the time, for whatever reason, a whole slew of books had come out about confidence. Oh, right. Mm. And I had them all. Yep. I consider I had considered confidence at that time to be the holy grail. Like yeah, this right. is this is what I'm working towards. I'm going to be a confident, confident. person. Yep. And <laughs> Danny took a look at the stack of books on my desk, and it was like the confidence code and the confidence this and that. And she's like, "Oh, I think confidence is overrated." And I'm like, "What? what? Yeah, overrated." This is what I'm going yeah, towards. This is it. This is it. And she said, "No, I think that most like really confident people are." kind of obnoxious mm. and she said that what she thought was more important than confidence was courage wow I'm like, hmm, yeah. what, do, what do you mean mm. and she said well taking that first step into doing something mm-hmm. is really the bravery that's yeah. required in in doing anything yes. and I and I I, I thought that was really profound. Yeah. And then for the next year, really started thinking about what is confidence, how does one attain confidence, and really came down to my own definition, which is confidence is the successful repetition of any endeavor. Yes. So it's the a, the ability to sort of see into the future, know you've done something well in the past, and the odds are if you have the same conditions or the same muscle memory, mm. you're going to be able to do it again. Yeah. Maybe not always, but... Mostly. Mostly, yeah. And, and that's really how you develop mastery as well, just mm. doing something over and over and over again so you have a sense that when you do it again, based on the previous experiences you've had, that you'll be able to do it. And there's no way to have confidence any other way. 
not real yeah. genuine yeah. confidence. Um, we're not born knowing how to do anything, really, no, except no. the involuntary behaviors that are controlled by the reptilian brain. Mm. Everything else we have to learn. Yep. And so why should we think that you know, if we want to be a writer or an artist mm. or mm. a basketball player or anything, that we're going to be able to just go out of the gate and do it well? Yeah, that's right. And so the idea that you develop confidence as you develop mastery is something that I think is, is really important for people to know. And it's almost then, it's not an arrogant thing if it's seen as a, a, just a doing, a, a repetitive doing. Oh, absolutely. Doing. The most generous people are in the, the most powerful people that are really confident and secure are very generous with their power. Very. It's the ones that hold it really tight that I think are the most insecure. Yeah. They're not confident. They don't yeah. want to share. They don't want to share. Yeah, and this gets back to something I learned from another really important thing I learned from Milton Glaser, mm -hmm. that you can see the world as a world of scarcity or you could see it as a world of abundance. Yeah. And he prefers to think of the world as a place of abundance with enough for everyone to share. Wow. So for the people that do have, they share with the people that don't, don't. and then there's enough for everyone. But if Beautiful. you hold on really tight to everything, mm -hmm. you're not really going to be able to experience the joy in having it. Wonderful. And I think, um, just so everyone knows, he's in the book. He's right, right yes. at the front. Yes. Milton Glaser created he's... the I Heart New York logo. Yeah. And also the very famous Bob Dylan poster oh, with his exactly. sort of colorful rainbow hair. And so he's brilliant. one of the most important mentors to me in my life. Yeah, brilliant. I think he's the first. Is he the first person in the book? Maybe? He's the first person in the book, the book. Yes. There you go. Um, then the other two words are regret and failure. And I think what I love is this idea that you talk about how do you, um, how do you live with something? Um, so this idea of regretting not doing something or failing and trying doing it. And I think there's something about those two words that I thought was really interesting in the way you describe them. Well, I think failure is only a failure when you decide to give up. Mm. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're just trying and hoping it'll work. And experimenting. And I disagree with Einstein with this whole notion of, uh, listen to me, I disagree <laughs> with Einstein. Uh, you know, the, the definition of an insanity is doing something over and over again and expecting different results. That's, to me, that's the definition of hope. hope. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. yes. you just keep trying to do something, do something. and, you know, silly Einstein. Um, <laughs> but, but and, and I think maybe he was talking more scientifically. I'm yeah. talking more behaviorally. And I think that we, I think, confuse rejection mm -hmm. with failure. Yeah. Rejection is when someone else is telling you no. Yeah. Yep. Now, it could be no forever. It could mm -hmm. be no, not right now. Mm -hmm. Or it could be, I'm just not the right fit. Yeah. We sometimes confuse the two. If someone else tells us we can't do something, they reject us from that. Yeah. And I spent all of my 20s believing that and yeah. into, well into my 30s. Somebody says, no, you can't do it. I was like, okay. And then you begin to realize that if you really want something badly enough, you can try to hack your way into it from another direction. Yeah. And I think that if you decide when somebody else tells you no, that it's never, you lose the opportunity of taking a chance in some other way where somebody else will be like, sure. Yeah. 
or making it yourself. So one of the mm. things that I find most empowering and what I did with the Design Matters was just self-generating my own opportunity. I was so tired of people saying no all the time that I just figured I'd do something on my own. Wow. And for anybody that's feeling stuck in anything, and even if you're not, if you're thrilled with your job, really happy mm. with what you're doing for somebody yeah. else and somebody else's company, great. If you're not, okay, think about how you can make something on your own. Yeah. And be able to do it in a way that essentially has no restrictions yeah, other than right. what other than your imagination. You know, you don't have a client telling you, no, you can't do it, or a gatekeeper saying, no, we don't want you, yeah. or anybody saying you're rejected. And even if you work for other people, you can still fail during that and enjoy fail. Like, well, I don't enjoy that. failure. No. <laughs> no. And I hate rejection. I take it very personally. I cry. I feel very bad about myself. It takes me a few days to recover. The good thing that I can tell you about that is that you metabolize these feelings. That's what I think. And you know, yes, I feel deep grief when I'm rejected or yep. when somebody says no or yep. somebody doesn't respond or whatever it is, but I know myself well enough now to know that that'll probably last two, three tops days. Dice. And then, and then I on. metabolize through that and pick myself up and move Off forward. What you don't metabolize is regret. Yeah, that's, I think, The woulda, part. coulda, shoulda, because you don't have any closure to that loop. Mm. And you're always thinking about, well, if I had done that, I could have done that. And so, and this is something that I've learned from Dan Gilbert, mm. um, which I show my students this video. And it's an old video. It's an old TED Talk, I think from 2004. It was right before he wrote this surprising science of happiness, yeah. which shows that we could pursue happiness from any number of directions organically yeah. when we go after what we want, we get it, we're happy, great. And then there's synthetic happiness, which is we go after what we want, we don't get it, we metabolize those feelings and then figure out something else that we want. Yeah, right. The wow. only way to really be unhappy mm. is to not go after what you want yeah. because then you're living in that state of regret. Right. Yeah, which is a It might take a while state. to get to happiness, but as long mm. as you're on the path, mm -hmm. you tend to feel like you're making progress. Mm -hmm. It's when you stop that you, or don't start. Or don't start. That's the that, Yeah, that tough like, part. oh, you know, when I was in my 20s, I should have been a fill yeah. in the blank. And so now with my students who are all, especially my undergrads, I can't even begin to tell you the heartbreak I feel when I see people in their early 20s beginning to edit what's possible in their lives yeah, yeah. before it's possible, mm -hmm. before they even decide if it's mm -hmm. possible, before mm -hmm. they even try, before they even take that first step into the courage, yeah. when they don't think they're smart enough or pretty enough or, or networked enough or thin enough or whatever it is. It's just yeah. not enough, and therefore, if I'm not enough, I'm not going to pursue it. Yeah. And if I can work with my students to avoid that yeah. That obstacle, yeah. then my job is done. Brilliant. Um, I think we are going to have to wrap up this session, and, we're, and it's been amazing, absolutely wonderful. And I just want to reiterate, the book is on its way, and it'll be at reading, so audio copies. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. That was Michaela Webb in conversation with Debbie Millman on the Wheeler Centre podcast. This event took place on the 17th of March 2022 at the Wheeler Centre as part of Melbourne Design Week. 
an initiative of the Victorian Government in collaboration with the National Gallery of Victoria. You can find more events and podcasts from the Wheeler Centre by visiting wheelercentre.com.